Hello and welcome to series, or indeed season, three of Mistakes Were Made. With me, Alex Steger. Me, Frank Talbot. And me, Chris Slowly. And exciting thing, guys, we're all doing this together live in the same room. Yeah, I can smell you. I mean, in a good Why way. would you say that? <laughs> Why would you? I mean, that's, that's not staying in. That has to stay in. Oh, no, that's just how people think I smell. I mean, I don't no, want, no, I don't no, want no. that. I know it applies. You can smell. I just kind of wanted to get something. <laughs> Sounds really creepy. Definitely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, One more time. Before we get to today's guest, and we've got a great one, I think it'd be nice to just have a little bit of a chat about what we've got coming up this season, Chris. Yeah, we've got some great people coming up. We've got Peter Krauss, chairman, founder of Aperture Investors, talks us ex, through. Ex-CEO. Ex Bernstein CEO. So left in acrimonious circumstances. He did indeed. We don't talk about that. No, we sort of, we, we avoided that slightly, but we do talk about issues related to the asset management industry that he's got strong opinions on. Who else have we got, Frank? We've got Dan Davidovitz, Poland Capital, US uh, equity growth manager. Bonus points for pronouncing his name right there. Yeah, yeah, cheers. Yeah. Thanks, I really worked on that beforehand. But uh, one of, if not the best uh, growth manager in the sort of last five, six years. And of course, also with Dan, we should say, um, and this wasn't why you booked him, but uh, uh, Mistakes Were Made Superfan. Claims, claims to have listened to every single episode. I think he may have just said that to get an easy ride. And if he did, it worked. It worked. 100% it worked. Flattery. You know, flattery. It will get you everywhere. Um, and we've got, a, we've got a sports star. We right? have got a sports star. We've got Mark Warburton, who runs an English football team. Soccer team for the American you. listeners. Standard disclaimer in the UK, but he was also a currency trader at AIG and a number of other banks. And he does a better job at me than linking investing in football, whereas I just want to talk about football. So it's hard. But he was great, yeah. And we learned a lot about some of the mistakes that these, uh, these professional sports stars are making. Um, spoiler alert for absolutely no one, crypto, NFTs. That's, that's where the problems are. Uh, but yeah, he was, he, was, uh, yeah he, was, he, was, he was fascinating. And we've got loads more guests beside. I mean, Frank, you booked quite a few guests for this, didn't you? Oh, yeah, 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 Reams. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's my, my notebook. Can, you, can you remember any of them? Uh, yeah, like I said, I'm in the discovery phase. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to front run anything. You know? Cool, yeah, no. Just drop us an email when you've got Yeah, I just want to keep, yeah. keep people okay. on tenterhooks. For cool, yeah. We all contribute in different ways to this. And I think that, and that's important, isn't it, to remember. Um, great. Well, back to today's guest. A great guest to kick off this season, um, particularly well known to our listeners in the UK, but, but someone who's had a big impact across asset management Germany, Martin Gilbert. Uh, yeah, Martin Gilbert is, is certainly a, is a big deal. It was a really enjoyable chat with Martin. Uh, I found him very forthcoming. I kind of get the impression he's always been that way, despite the position he's held as CEO of a massive uh, asset manager or a massive asset manager in, in European terms, that is. Um, it's uh, not, a, not afraid to say what he thinks. He's certainly, he, his biggest mistake, I guess he's come to terms with it now, uh, but I imagine at the time it was incredibly stressful. For those of you who don't know who Martin is, he was the CEO of Standard Life Aberdeen. And uh, in fact, he used to run Aberdeen and he was behind that big merger of those two large Scottish investment managers, FTSE 100 companies, done loads of mergers. And that's something that we talk about in some detail. Yeah, he really took the eat or be eaten mantra to heart from, from the very, pretty much the beginning of his company. Yeah, I think few people have done, uh, you know, more, more M&A in this industry than him. And that's something, something that we touch upon. And he's very candid about, you know, sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't, doesn't work out, frankly. Uh, and yeah, candor very much the name of the game, I think, in this interview. He's, you know, sometimes that we all know about this. In asset management, there is a lot of, um, 
a lot of BS, isn't there? There's a lot of BS, a lot of PR, a lot of sort of, you know, management speak, but you don't get that with Martin. You, you get, frankly, sort of, you know, pretty honest conversation. What were the mistakes, but, but crucially, you know, what, what did you learn from them as well? Uh, respectfully, you've had a, a long and successful career, but I'm sure there's been, you know, uh, things <laughs> that didn't work out along the way. Uh, and any, any that jumped to mind? Yeah, no, I suppose from my own personal career and at, at Aberdeen, uh, it would certainly be the uh, split caps that really sort of uh, was the, the, the worst period or the worst mis mistake, I suppose, of my career. Um, yeah, but, you know, uh, happy to delve into it in, in detail, but I think the one good thing that came out of it, if, if there was any good that came out of it, was we definitely learned from it and then went on from the end of 2004, uh, once, we, once we settled uh, with the regulator and settling with the regulator with no sort of admission of guilt, etc. But we went on, powered on from then as a business. So 2005 was really the start of another period of exceptional growth for the, the business, having learned from those, uh, those mistakes. So and it, you, it's, yeah, I was going to say it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to see that the warning signs were there. And uh, I suppose the mistake on my part and my colleagues' part was we didn't see those warning signs. I was going to ask, I mean, look, I, I know it was a long time ago. You've probably you know, spent ages at the time thinking about it, talking about it, and, and a lot since. But just we don't have to spend forever on it. But I suppose briefly, what looking back now were the, were the, were the big mistakes that, that you or your colleagues made? And what were the, if, if we get to, what were the specific lessons that you took from them that, that helped you grow? And if we could start with the mistakes, you know, was it uh, the cross selling? Was it the selling to retail investors? Was it the marketing? What, from your point of view, was yeah. the, the big area? I, I think a mixture, a mixture of those uh, selling to retail investors was, was certainly one. But I suppose the big mistake, if there, if there was one, was using bank debt uh, rather than um, rather than zero dividend preference shares, and we used bank debt because we thought it would be cheaper. So you would enhance the return of the of the income bearing shares, and and I think that without going being too technical here is that the um, the closed end funds, the dual class closed end funds that had zero dividend preference shares rode through the, uh, the bear market and came out the other side. Even if the zeros went into negative, which they did in the 70s actually, um, but bank debt meant you had to sell down the assets as the market declined. So when you reached the bottom, there was nothing left. There was no assets to, to gear, to, to uh, come back out with. So that was the big mistake basically, using bank debt rather than zero dividend preference shares. Uh, selling to retail investors was also a mistake because, of course, uh, when retail investors lost money, politicians became involved. Once so you, took a, you, you took a beating there from, or sort of, uh, 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 not a beating, perhaps, a sort of uh, a verbal uh, yeah, beating yeah, from yeah. some of those. So, so some of the names it you were called, looking like back, so, some of the names you were called uh, can't have been too <laughs> it enjoyable. Felt, it felt like a beating. <laughs> I was reading yeah, the, they sort of, uh, they the unacceptable, 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's a sophisticated snake oil salesman and Ooh, unacceptable ouch. face of capitalism. Yeah, that was, that was harsh. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't, you don't remember them though, do you? So that's good. <laughs> yeah. you, haven't, you haven't got a lot of dartboards still in your... In your yeah, um... no, but I know, but I got on well with... Um, so as I say, politicians got involved, which forced regulators to get involved. And uh, the uh, the chairman of the Treasury Select Committee at the time was uh, was a Scottish guy, so I thought I'd be okay. You know, called Lord McFall. Uh, he's now Lord McFall. In fact, I think he's even Speaker of the House of uh, House of Lords. So, um, and he he's described me as one of his best pupils because uh, uh, he was a school teacher actually in the past and. And uh, he said he said he came in, left with his tail between his legs, but left but learnt his lesson. So, um, but yeah, no, it was a fascinating uh, experience uh, when the politicians get involved, and then the press get involved, the regulator gets involved. So it becomes a sort of uh, a feeding frenzy. And and to be brutally honest, I was probably very lucky to survive. Um, my colleague Chris Fishwick, who sadly is no longer with us, he he didn't survive really through it, um, and and he bore the brunt of a lot of the the criticism that uh, that came our way. And you you touched on it there. I mean, you said Lord McFall called you his his best pupil, and you said you you know obviously the company then went on to to to, to great success sort of post two thousand four onwards. So what what were the big lessons that you took from it, and how did you? I suppose you, you use them to your advantage or, you know, how did you? Yeah, I think, practice? I think, I think avoid gearing. So when the crash came in 2006, seven and eight uh, with credit uh, C CDOs and the uh, CDSs, credit default swaps, credit default obligations, these sort of things, we avoided them all because I knew, uh, I knew that, they were going to uh, collapse. And I remember speaking at a conference in about 2006, someone said, what do you predict is gonna be, what, where are the dangers? I said, definitely CDOs, CDLs, they remind me of split caps. And of course, they were a much bigger, I mean, they brought the financial system down. They weren't in retail. The reason they, they weren't such a big scandal was that, they weren't held by retail investors. They were all held by institutions because they were packaged up to be triple A. So, so that was the big lesson we learned and avoided that, um, avoided investing in them. And um, yeah, and went from strength, went from strength to strength actually. So, 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 so I to summarize maybe, maybe too neatly, but, but in a way that that scandal back in the early 2000s set you up to, to not be, too badly hitting in 08, 07, 08, and, and sort of get through that crisis. Relatively yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely correct. I, I would say asset managers went through the financial crisis reasonably well, um, but the great thing is we hadn't, on this occasion, invested our clients' money in these, in these, uh, or or managed them either. So um, the main owners, as I said, were. Uh, German banks or French banks or anyone looking for AAA rated paper, 
that um, that that had a reasonable yield. So as you know, they packaged a lot of mortgages together in the U.S. and turned it into AAA. So um, yeah, that that was the big lesson I learned was I knew I knew that gearing gearing kills. I mean, basically. Are you seeing uh, are you seeing any parallels in today's market with that? Any any areas that you think oh I wouldn't touch that? I'm really glad we're not involved there. Yeah, I think I think um, you know as as you know, there's a massive shift going on at the moment from public markets to private markets. So I'm I'm slightly I got I'm slightly concerned about the levels that private markets have got to in terms of valuations. I mean, I was pretty worried about the, I was pretty worried about the U.S. market, um, just because it is so tech orientated, and I thought a lot of the tech stocks reminded me of 1999, 2000, when Vodafone was 15% of the U.K. index, and and tech stocks were riding high. Um, but the lesson you learn from that is the good ones went absolutely thrived. So I think the key now in, in this sort of market shakeout is see which of these uh, fintechs are going to go from strength to strength. So I want to, to take a step back too as well and sort of um, ask you about, you know, you've hired a lot of managers over your time, maybe not you directly, but companies you've run for, uh, run rather, um, and, and sort of your, your opinions on, um, I suppose, what makes a good manager and what are red flags, either sort of, before you hire them or, or once you hire them and they're running, you know, decent slugs of money for, for, for the companies that, that, that you run. And, um, you know, yeah, what, what are the qualities that you think make it make a good manager? But, and equally on the sort of mistake side, what are, what are the red flags that over your time you've sort of noticed, oh, hang on, actually, uh, this isn't as good as we thought it was or that this may, we may need to move this person on, et cetera. I think look, good, good fund managers, the really good ones, I would say tend to be quite humble. Uh, there's no arrogance with the really good ones because they know they can underperform uh, badly during lengthy periods. And that's because they stick to their process. And the hardest thing for a fund manager is to stick to his, his process, whatever that process might be. He might be a value or a growth or whatever. Um, and the good ones don't have what we call style drift. They don't try and change their style as the markets sort of move as they are at the moment from a growth phase to a, a value phase. Now that's really hard. The mistake a lot of fund managers make, the biggest mistake they make is when they're underperforming, they try and trade their way out. So uh, I think the biggest danger signal I always looked out for was if a fund manager was underperforming and his turnover started to go up, I would always sort of say, look, the best thing to do is do nothing. Just sit. Are you happy with your portfolio? If you're happy with the stocks you own, sit with them. Don't try and trade. And, um, and that's the best advice you can give a fund manager and, and just reassure them. Look, we know why you're underperforming. Your style might be out of fashion or the stocks. The, these few stocks you bought might be out of fashion, but don't try trade your way out. So don't do as we saw in the late 90s, the UBSs of this world capitulating at the point of maximum pain 
if you recall, Vodafone kept going up and up and up and up. And eventually they thought, oh, I've got to get into these tech stocks or whatever it is. But you, you, if, if you capitulate, as I say, at the point of maximum pain and move and get the double whammy of losing performance on the way up and then losing it on the way down, you're, you're dead as a fund manager, basically. Did you learn those those lessons the hard way? You sound enlightened now, but <laughs> no, I was never any good as a fund manager, luckily. So uh, I, I managed to take my fund to bottom of the league of the table, which you couldn't do if you tried, by the way. And uh, <laughs> I, I decided I was better at running the company and better at better at managing fund managers and managing the money. But I was never passionate about stocks as as Hugh Young would be, who was sort of the, the guy I worked with the longest in asset management. You know, he loved stocks and he loved, he loved buying and holding stocks. So he, um, yeah, so it's a different, it's a different sort of skill set. Mine is much more on dealing with the fund managers, dealing because fund managers are talented individuals often on the spectrum, as you know, um, <laughs> often uh, need constant reassurance. So you've just got to work out how you treat each one. And I remember Alec Ferguson saying, you know, every footballer is different and uh, you've got to treat them all differently. Some you need to bully a bit, some you need to reassure. So that, that's what I really learned, I suppose, was my skill set. Did you, how do you did decide? You... Sorry, Frank, go. How do you decide which of your portfolio managers to invest your own money with? <laughs> so you've given them a job. You know, how many of them you know. Did you? Yeah. Oh, did, did you invest in them you, all yourself? I mean, or did you? Where, where, what did you do with your yeah, own money? Yeah, I've invested. I I only ever invested in our own funds. Um, I was I was always I was always a great believer in emerging markets and Asia, so I always. Um, and I had money in Asia from oh, 30 years and we've made in some of our funds 15 times our money and so on. So, yeah, I mean, Asia has been extraordinary over the long term. Um, yeah, I mean, I love I love small cap and uh, I love mid caps and uh, I'm not so fond of US large cap, but it's too boring. And I mean, although they've done exceptionally Not the worst well. place to have been for the last decade, I, I mean. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, uh, but I, I, I think going forward from now, I, I like the small cap. UK, I like UK and I like UK small cap. And emerging markets is so out of fashion as well that you, you've got to go for the areas that people don't love. Has that always speaking paid to off my pension here. <laughs> Has that always paid off for you? On a, you know, we've talked again to sort of yeah. Professional mistakes, I suppose, personal investing mistakes. You know, has that sort of strategy always paid off? Have there been times when you've gone, wish I'd, wish I'd gone with a different fund? Or, or yeah, I, wish, I mean, obviously, I wish I'd invested in the, the five big tech companies uh, globally. I wish I'd had the the um, the vision to see how much, how much. I mean, I, I've got this other expression I used a lot, which is. We all overestimate change over one year and underestimate it over five. And I think, I think I'm guilty of that with these texts, with the, the big tech stocks, the Microsofts, even the Microsofts, which are 
you know, been a dull, which is perceived to be sort of dull and boring, you know, compared to the Amazons of this world. But um, yeah, I wish I'd had the sense to see Amazon and these sort of uh, Apple, these sort of things. Um, but no, I, I mean, I never ever trade my funds. I just, I just put money in and leave it there. Then I look back in five years and I think, wow, that one's done well. Why is this one not done that well? Franco, did you have um, anything you wanted to come in on? Yeah, I was wondering what you thought about, um, you know, mistakes that you see in the industry, the biggest mistakes that asset management makes in general. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, I mean, then two, two other mistakes I've personally made was not seeing the rise of ETFs and not seeing the rise in private markets. So probably sticking too much to what, you're, uh, what you've done in the past. So yeah, I, I would say those two, those two things would be, and, and I'm, not, I'm not the only one that's made those mistakes. A lot of the other long-only asset managers have also made that pretty, mistake. Pretty big firms in the US who, who, who are pretty slow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So just look, I mean, Capital it, Group just launching some ETFs this week or, the, or this year, you know, for the first did they, time. Oh, I didn't see that. I well, know the I, Capital Group. They're my favorite. I, I would say I would say the fund management company I respect the most would be Capital, probably. They're, they're up there, I would say. And Bailey you, Gifford. I like, I like Bailey Gifford. I who do you respect the least? Oh, I don't know. I, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to insult anyone like that. Um, I was mostly joking. Yeah, I know you were. But uh, but I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? Here we were last year, record markets, but morale amongst US long-only CEOs at record lows. So they could see they could see these headwinds coming, you know, fee compression, ETFs, passive, public, uh, public to private, ESG costs, all of these things were hitting the, the fund management industry. What mistakes do you, sorry, what mistakes I'm interested in, in knowing, what mistakes do you think the new generation are making of asset managers? I mean, obviously you're on the board of Revolut, they've done well out of cryptos. Do you think that's a, a pain point, NFTs, dare I say it, the metaverse? Does this make you shudder and think, oh, this is, this is going too far? Well, as I say, we all overestimate change over one year and underestimated over five. So I suspect we're we're all overestimating the the metaverse over the next year, uh, crypto, these sort of things. But probably over five or ten years. I mean, I, my view is the metaverse is just better internet. I mean, I'm probably naive, but I just think it's. It's sort of referred, you know, as you see it referred to as Internet 3 or whatever it is. And it's just that it's it's so, yeah, it, it, we're going to see much, much better interaction. I mean, it's a bit like this call. I, I think, I mean, if you look back two years and we tried to do a video call like this, it was terrible. I mean, you, you know, there was a poor. I mean, how come Zoom has suddenly transformed calls over just from nothing. I mean, it's been the most amazing, uh, uh, most amazing thing, I think. So, yeah, I mean, the, I, I regard the metaverse a bit like this, you know, a bit, a bit like Zoom from, you know, those old sort of systems we, 
we said I had before. Um, last question, Martin, because I'm, I'm sort of conscious of time, but we always let um, we let people round off with a with a brag. Uh, we've asked you a lot about you know worst decisions or worst moments and, and mistakes and what you learned. Um, we don't always keep these in, to be fair, but we do let people ask. Uh, we do we do ask rather uh, best decisions uh, or you know any any sort of one or two decisions oh, that stand out. Um, the best the best decisions I've ever made are buying Sentinel way back in 1988, buying Edinburgh fund managers when we were right at the bottom, buying Morton Grenfell Asset Management, the, the great Morton Grenfell Asset Management. So those were the those were the big the big ones I probably got right. Martin Gilbert Franco, what, what do we think there? I mean loads of stuff as we mentioned before very open, very candid, uh, and a man you know that you know, was hit at one point in his career with a, with a pretty pretty significant scandal. Yeah, big big mistake. I don't imagine there's a lot that, that really throws him and makes him uncomfortable. But having your name called out in Parliament has got to be a very sort of chastening experience. It's, it's never a good day when you're called a, a snake oil salesman or the the unacceptable face of capitalism. Um, I mean, I don't know who the acceptable face is, Buffett maybe, but yeah, it's not, it's not things that you want to be called, is it? Yeah, I mean, he must have contemplated this could have been the end of the business that he'd spent so many years building at that time. I mean, he's probably, as I say, he's comfortable with it now, but you know, he's an individual who's taken a lot of risks in, in his career. It's certainly not easy to buy a company. That's got to be a massive risk. You know, you're paying the fair price. Does it fit with your existing offering? He's done it countless times and ultimately been more successful than, than he hasn't been. Absolutely. I, th I thought it was interesting though, sort of when we did discuss the, the split cap scandal and he sort of mentioned one of the mistakes there was, you know, obviously they'd advertise these things to retail investors and once retail investors were involved, that's what sort of, you know, blew things up and made things worse and obviously got them sort of worse headlines and stuff. And I thought it was interesting, his sort of uh, concerns about what things go out to retail investors and some of his worries that he mentioned around um, the sort of shift towards private markets and asset management and how he sort of worried there could be issues there. Yeah, I mean, he said that this is somewhere that somebody's not getting involved in. He does think it's somewhere that has, I mean, he didn't use mis-selling for obvious reasons, but I think I think it's an area that a lot of people have been concerned about and, and increasing importance in private markets as we move to a more ESG sort of world where you're going to get stuff that isn't green and is going to go off the shelf and isn't going to be publicly listed that, that is going to be dangerous. I is don't it, think that's is the it area about ESG? Is it more about. like just valuations? And so you're getting these things, you know, uh, frankly, probably, well, you don't know, but maybe the valuations are super high, lack of liquidity. Isn't that sort of more the issue with the Yeah, absolutely. Market? You need to look at the SPAC boom. But to be fair, there's, there's quite a lot of stuff in listed markets at the moment that looks pretty speculative, even with the sell-off that's been going on. Absolutely. And um, I liked also the, some of the points that he made around the managers he liked. Obviously, look, this is a guy who's run countless asset management firms, has hired, literally given them their jobs, you know, I would imagine hundreds of <laughs> portfolio managers and interesting to know the kind of the things that he likes and looks for. Yeah, he wants, he wants to see humility from these people. But I, that's actually quite a tough thing to understand, you know, for us, if we, you know, put a, put a fund manager in our pensions, may never have met them. And, and well, maybe they're just really good at convincing us that they are humble when, when they're not. Maybe it's just he thinks what, what people want to see as opposed to brazen confidence. But I think that was important. No style drift, which is, is an interesting point. It's got to have been tough to stick to your guns at certain points in the last 10 years. If, if it wasn't delivering, you know, he's got some, some fund managers in his own house that have had sort of poor periods after exceptional runs. Um, also, I think from a personal point of view, I'm, I'm glad to... You know, there's someone that really missed out on the explosion in tech 
that there's someone else. You know, arguably though, he's uh, obviously done all right for himself. Did you? So did you miss out on the explosion in tech? I feel you. Were, I feel you were across this. Did, did not invest much in U.S. equities over the first ten years. No. All, the, all EM. Right? We were we were singing off the same hymn sheet. Yeah, fine. You and him both. And I guess you're sort of about equal wealth now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wealth and standing, of course. Chris, any, any viewpoint on this? Well, standing's a good point because he remains a big, like I'm coming up from the European point of view, he remains a big figure. Even after he left Aberdeen, people thought maybe he would go quietly, but he obviously hasn't. Asset Co's huge. And spe- and, this, and is, he, this is the firm that he sort of has launched the last couple of years. This is the new one, which has gone on the big a M&A. Consolidation vehicle, effectively. Exactly, so. yeah. And he's, he's, he's popping up a lot. He's very personable. I've mentioned before once when the Aberdeen Standard deal was going through. Huge deal. It was a massive deal for our market. And he was, I was tweeting about it from our work account and a fund selector said, do you know why he's Martin Gilbert 83 on Twitter? And I thought, well, he's not 30 years old, so it must be something else. And he came back with, Martin Gilbert himself jumped into the conversation and said, it's the year Aberdeen Football Club won the European Cup Winners' Cup. That was the day they were doing the deal. You'd think he would have other things on his mind. But yeah, always very personal, always very open to talk about things. Good, yeah, good with the media, which you oh, know, never, never hurts, I suppose. Yeah, I like that. Deal's going down. But what's Twitter saying? Yeah. And specifically, what's, it, what's this fund selector in Eastern Europe got to say? Okay, I, I do, guys, I actually do need to reply to this. Um, <laughs> be with you in a minute. Um, cool. Well, I mean, I think, I think that sort of sums up Martin Gilbert quite, quite nicely. Well, yeah, that was Martin Gilbert, and thanks everyone for listening. We're we're excited to bring you this new season, so so do do keep listening. And it's uh, goodbye from me, Alex Teager. Goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. And goodbye from me, Chris Slowly. Mm-hmm.